This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teachers Talk Radio. I'm Andrea Hanna, and this is my first Twilight episode, so thank you for listening in. Today's episode is Classrooms, Cells or Wards, Unmasking Foucault's School Prison Paradigm. So let's jump into it. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. It's time. So, hello everyone. Tonight, I am on about classrooms. Are they cells and wards? So, before even jumping into that, I just wanted to introduce myself a little bit. This is my first time on Teachers Talk Radio. I'm very excited to be here. Um, My background is as a teacher of scarily over 10 years now. It's flown in. Um, My background is primarily as a religious studies and English teacher, and I have taught all over the world, trained in London, taught in London, then moved to China, then to the United States, and then COVID happened, and I decided to flee back to the safety of the NHS and the open arms of the United Kingdom, and now I'm back home in Northern Ireland. So since returning, a lot of thoughts have been on my mind. Um, I was in the United States primarily as a postgraduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. And while I was there, I was introduced to the ideas of Michel Foucault. And he is a figure that I'm sure many of you who have studied history, psychology, sociology, you'll be familiar with him. But he is a name that we don't really hear as educators. And I feel like that's a real shame because he has a lot to say about the nature of our education systems globally. So tonight, what I hope to do is give you a flavour, first of all, of Michel Foucault's thoughts. And then from there, jump into a discussion with yourselves. I would love it if you would write in, call in, um, share your thoughts, not just as an educator, but as someone who has been educated as you reflect on Michel Foucault's Um, works and ideas regarding education. So let's just jump straight into a little bit about who Michel Foucault is. So Michel Foucault was a luminary in the fields of philosophy, history, social theory, and he still remains one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. His ideas have been dissected, debated, deliberated by scholars worldwide, And they've become essential reference points for social researchers, especially those focused on the intricacies of educational institutions. So a little bit more about him. He was born in Poitiers in France in 1926, and his work spanned an extensive range of topics. But a central theme remained constant, which was the relationship between power, knowledge and institutions. And Foucault's writings are rife with meticulous examinations of how our societal institutions, from prisons to clinics to schools, 
both manifest and maintain power. Among his illustrious works is one called Discipline and Punish, which I'm drawing largely on for today. And it really stands out as a cornerstone in understanding the dynamics of power in educational settings. In it, Foucault profoundly states that the Enlightenment, which discovered the liberties, also invented the disciplines. And this sentiment underscores the paradoxical nature of educational institutions as spaces that are both liberating, but also constraining. So schools, as Foucault explicitly posits in Discipline and Punish, are not merely institutions of learning, but they're also apparatuses of modern day disciplinary power. They are designed both physically and ideologically to regulate, mold, and in some respects control. From the architecture of our very classrooms, the hierarchy between ourselves as teachers and students, to the timetables that we follow, and even the curricula, they are all embedded with layers of power relations that serve to discipline minds and bodies. And as he insightfully noted, is it surprising that prisons resemble factories, barracks, hospitals, and schools, which in turn all resemble prisons? This reflection reveals how schools, like prisons, employ techniques of observation, surveillance, and measures of normalization to produce disciplined individuals. And one of Foucault's most striking observations about our schools is encapsulated in his assertion that schools serve the same social functions as prisons and mental institutions to define, classify, control, and regulate people. This is quite a provocative statement, and it really challenges us to reevaluate the purported benevolence and nobility of education and educational institutions. Rather than just places of enlightenment, schools become apparatuses that delineate and maintain societal norms and hierarchies. So building on this perspective, Foucault notes, the school is not the privileged locus of formation of intellectuals or the diffusion of knowledge. It is a peripheral institution which plays a merely marginal role in the development of knowledge and its use. So this critique not only questions the centrality of schools in knowledge creation and dissemination, but it actually highlights the existence of diverse and often marginalized avenues of intellectual development beyond formal education. And Foucault further challenges our preconceived notions by declaring, the school is not a natural institution, it is a historically determined one. And this observation beckons us to understand that schools are not just immutable, universal constructs. They are entities born out of a specific historical and societal context. They are, in essence, products of their time, shaped by prevailing ideologies, governmental power dynamics and societal needs. And Perhaps one of Foucault's most piercing critiques is encapsulated in the following claim. He says, the school is not an institution which prepares for life. It is an institution which takes life away, which is quite shocking. This statement from Foucault underscores the notion that schools 
in their quest for discipline and conformity might inadvertently stifle the very essence of life, that of spontaneity, of intellectual curiosity and of individuality. So beyond schools, Foucault's analysis delves into the larger sphere of educational institutions, namely universities. And I feel that's quite timely. We've had our students A-level results yesterday. Many of them are heading forward into university education. So these institutions are well worth considering for many of us as A-level teachers who send our students onwards to a university education. For Foucault, universities are not just centers of academic pursuits but are, as described, multifaceted amalgamations of economic, political, judicial, and epistemological relations of power. They operate within a web of societal expectations, so-called norms, and power dynamics. Their emphasis on communication above capacity and power speaks to the manner in which these institutions prioritize the transmission and reception of established knowledge and societal norms over the development of individuals' capacities or the critique of existing power structures. And that is something to really think about. A lot of us think of universities as liberal institutions that often raise the mirror to society and critique power. But at the same time, those institutions are transmitters of the same knowledge structures that governments want students to know. So taking the example further, if we look at university campuses, Foucault's perspective illuminates them as what he calls artificial enclaves. They are spaces that are curated for a very specific experience, for very specific behaviours and for very specific outcomes. Within these enclaves, students navigate a landscape dotted with both overt and covert expectations. They are subtly moulded to absorb socially desirable modes of behaviour and forms of knowledge, according to Foucault, before they reintegrate, or as he puts it, are recuperated into society. So this encapsulates the essence of the educational journey as not just one of personal enlightenment, but also of societal alignment and conformity. So Ultimately, in understanding Foucault's immense influence on the study of schools and educational settings, one cannot ignore his larger critiques on power. For Foucault, power was not just possessed, it was exercised. It was not just top-down, it was dispersed, and it was always omnipresent. Schools and educational institutions through his lens became arenas where these intricate dynamics of power played out daily, shaping the futures of individuals and by extension, their societies. So ultimately, Michel Foucault's contributions offer invaluable insights into the delicate interplay of power, of knowledge and of discipline within educational settings. His work serves as a beacon guiding scholars and educators like ourselves in critically examining and understanding the spaces we often take for granted. As we ponder today on the nature and purpose of education, Foucault's echoing words remind us, where there is power, there is resistance. In acknowledging the power dynamics inherent in our education system, 
we can also recognize the potential for resistance, critique, and change. I can already see some of you writing in, thank you so much. So take a moment, digest, and then we're gonna jump into a discussion. For a fresh start to language learning, Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German, and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability, or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. BBC News website covers pressures being faced by providers of summer holiday clubs and activities as the rising cost of food drives down the value of support for pupils on free school meals. BBC News research shows that 67 of 92 councils have cut their support or kept it the same as last year, leading to a drop in value when food inflation, currently at over 17%, is taken into account. Across all four home nations, offers vary, but support has ended completely in Northern Ireland. In England, many councils offer vouchers to those eligible. The vouchers can be spent in supermarkets, but inflation means that the price of many foods has gone up. Further pressure has been added to families as those eligible are also finding it hard to access places on the holiday activities and food programme in some parts of England. The programme offers support with activities and food, but some providers say they don't receive enough funding to cover the increasing levels of need. One provider in West Yorkshire said they only got funding for 20 places, but had 70 children who would qualify on their waiting list. The news site further reports that a controversial decision to scrap free school meal help in Wales during the holidays could end up in the courts. The charity The Public Law Project is acting on behalf of a woman in Cardiff who says she and other families had no time to prepare for the short notice decision and that the government did not think about how to reduce the impact of the change made. The Welsh Government insisted that the announcement made in March gave fair warning to those affected but a decision to reinstate the programme for the May half term appears to have caused confusion for many, as there was no clear announcement that this was the final extension of the scheme. The Guardian covers a report from the United Nations which calls for a ban on smartphones in schools. UNESCO, the UN's Education, Science and Culture Agency, said there was evidence that excessive use was linked to reduce educational performance. It went on to suggest that high levels of screen time had a negative effect on children's emotional stability. UNESCO concluded its report saying, not all change constitutes progress. Just because something can be done, it does not mean it should be done. Referring clearly to the idea that technology as a whole, including artificial intelligence, should never supplant face-to-face -face interaction between students and teachers. The report said that countries needed to have clear objectives and principles to ensure digital tech in education was beneficial and avoided harm both to individual students' health and, more widely, to democracy and human rights. 
UNESCO did accept that online learning stopped education melting down when schools and universities closed during pandemic lockdowns, but added that millions of poorer students who lacked internet access were still left behind. Countries banning smartphones include France, which has had it in place since 2018, and the Netherlands launching a ban from 2024. Former Education Secretary Gavin Williamson called for bans in England in 2021 as part of a crackdown on poor student discipline. But he was criticised as failing to understand that schools had had policies regarding phones in place for years. In the USA, CBS News reports on changes to Florida's social studies curriculum for 2023. The news website states that the new curriculum will include lessons on how slaves develop skills that could be used for personal benefit. The lessons will be taught to students in 6th to 8th grade. They include teaching students on understanding the causes and consequences of the slave trade, the similarities and differences between serfdom and slavery, and the contact of European explorers with systematic slave trading in Africa. Vice President Kamala Harris voiced her opinions on the curriculum changes, calling them an attempt to gaslight us. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dismissed Harris's criticism and one of the co-authors of the new curriculum said, any attempt to reduce slaves to just victims of oppression fails to recognise their strength, courage and resiliency during a difficult time in American history. The new curriculum has been criticised heavily by many who see it as just another example of the conservative agenda which seeks to quash views not aligned with its own. Finally, Schools Week report on a police investigation into cyber attacks on exam boards Pearson and OCR, which led to the arrest of a 16-year-old boy. Both boards had exam papers extracted from their systems and sold online. The youth was arrested in early July on suspicion of theft, fraud by false representation and computer misuse. He has been released on bail until early October. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, over the next few episodes I'm going to discuss connections, so let's get wired or not, as the case may be. The plan was to do this in order of most essential, however a chicken and egg question came first. What is the most essential connection, the internet or your display device? Without the internet, there'd be far less interaction, however, how does this compare? to the ability to display your screen to the class. I asked you on Twitter and at Elizabeth J. Rowan was the first to answer the way that I'll hasten to add the most popular choice, the internet. There's 1001 ways to present or display information. I couldn't agree more. And talking of more, at more to learn, question my question, asking, why do I have to choose? Showing the expectation we teachers have for both. However, when asked to choose, the answer was the internet and give me a whiteboard pen. So. Let's talk about the internet and the difference it makes to teaching. We have a connection to the biggest network of networks at our fingertips, indexed by powerful search engines that return results in seconds, even ranking them in an order of likelihood of them containing the answer we are looking for. Obviously, we need to swerve adverts and fake news from time to time, but what a resource we have. For those of us willing to admit they were around, 20 years ago teachers were still transitioning from chalkboards. Every teacher was in the process of getting a laptop, the projector was on a trolley you wheeled into the classroom, and social media didn't exist. You couldn't just take a virtual tour inside a volcano or go on an interactive 3D journey through the digestive system, have a guided tour around a highly secure Google storage facility, drop a jelly baby on a map, walk around the coast of Spain. 
Italy or Australia. The internet has brought us all of this and harnessing, filtering and presenting its power to our pupils has become an art that we have had to master. So here are a couple of tricks you can use to keep yourself organised. Control plus D bookmarks a page. But did you know that if you make a folder of bookmarks you can right click and open all. All of your bookmarks in that folder open as new tabs. This is great if moving from one lesson to another on a different topic. If you use a lot of YouTube clips and websites, Wakeless is a great way to organise collections of links and clips. It's free to make an account and you can share collections via links with pupils. I'd like to finish with a question. Do you know the difference between the internet and the World Wide Web? Tune in next week to find out. Why not get in touch? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hi again, everyone. Thank you for hanging around. So, You've had a little bit of time to percolate, to think about that little introduction to Foucault's thought. So I thought we could jump straight into a couple of things that are obviously glaringly obvious in terms of how our classrooms might resemble a prison cell or a ward. And obviously the first is maybe examining the UK's education system at large through a Foucauldian lens. And obviously such an insight can be very provocative, especially when considering standardization and uniformity that we have in the United Kingdom. So here are some things that we could be thinking about. Um, our UK education system, especially with its national curriculum, determines obviously a very centralized set of knowledge to be disseminated across schools. And from a Foucauldian perspective, this could be viewed very obviously as an exercise of power. Um, it decides what is considered legitimate knowledge and what also gets excluded. Moreover, institutions like Ofsted not only monitor educational standards, but they also have the power to influence what and how, how things are taught. And I'm sure a lot of you have opinions on this. I know we're very opinionated when it comes to inspection. And we've seen numerous modern day historians critique and talk about things like um, the history curriculum that is taught in our schools and how it often overlooks more marginalized groups of history. And it decides a very monolithic or homogenized view of British history that should be taught in schools, um, not giving way to other perspectives that might exist as well. Um, on top of that, We've obviously got the disciplinary mechanisms which our schools um, adopt. So British schools are like many others. We're not unique. I'm talking about schools broadly, um, using our own nation as an example. Um, our school system employs very strict timetables. Um, we are a nation that employs uniform. Not all Western countries have uniform dress codes. And we have a, regi a very strict regimen of examinations. So Foucault's concept of disciplinary institutions would align very closely with this. You know, this, this is what he examined. He examined prison systems, which employed similar timetables. Um, so the goal here, as Foucault might suggest, isn't just academic excellence, which a lot of us as educators are aspiring for our students, but also producing what he called docile bodies. 
students who are conditioned to adhere to societal norms and structures and preparing them for roles that they'll assume in adulthood. It's less about how much um, they can achieve academically, but more so about making them in some ways, some might regard as fodder for the capitalist marketplace once they leave school. And the next thing is, considering yesterday, we've had our first wave of examination results. We've had A-levels, GCSEs are next week. There's a sense here of what Foucault referred to as panopticism. Um, for some of you, you might have heard of the panopticon before. Um, and even though he was French, he got this idea from a very famous Englishman, Jeremy Bentham, an ethicist and social reformer. And Jeremy Bentham had come up with this idea for a prison system. And essentially, this was a circular prison in which in the centre, there was a tower, a watchtower for the guards. Now, this tower would be above the eye line of the prisoners. So the prisoners could never see into the watchtower, but it always gave the impression to prisoners that someone was watching them, that they were constantly under surveillance and being observed. And this in turn was expected to have an impact on the prisoners' behaviour. They internalised what was deemed the expected behaviour of the prison institution. Now, when it comes to GCSEs and A-levels, the high-stakes nature that these students um, are told are, be are placed on these exams basically has them under a continuous sense of observation and pressure, especially in the years running up to their GCSEs and the A-levels. And the knowledge that their future opportunities hinge on these exams can lead students to internalise these assessments' importance okay effectively disciplining themselves to meet the system's demands now we know this doesn't work for all students but this is obviously something um, of an effect of constant examination surveillance that we have imposed on our students here in the uk um, another thing to think about in our uk education system would be vocational versus academic streams now, I know not all schools necessarily do this anymore, um, but it's still very much present. Um, here in Northern Ireland, we have the grammar school system very much still in effect. Um, students, when they're age 11, take a transfer test. Um, it's optional, but they can elect to take it. And then if they are deemed of an academic standard, they would go on to a grammar school. Um, plenty of students are more than capable of grammar school selection but choose to stay on in comprehensive education but for a long time in Northern Ireland there was very much an idea of comprehensive means vocational, academic means grammar and I know from my experience within England schools still stream in comprehensive settings as well. So this division between vocational and academic paths in the UK education system can obviously be analysed through Foucault's ideas of classification and exclusion. Um, the system classifies students, determining which knowledge is appropriate for them, potentially limiting their future trajectories based on this early categorisation. So I know this is something many of you potentially have opinions on, um, I know from my own experience um, as a student myself and um, friends of mine 
who either went to grammar schools or did not, very much felt that the path of their life from that moment on was either determined or more open to them. And that's quite a sad thing in many ways to think that an educational institution, which is, you know, hopefully aspiring to give these students a huge range of options could actually be stifling and limiting them by categorizing them at such an early age. And another aspect to think about, and again, it connects back to the A-level results yesterday, is our university system and power dynamics. So Foucault obviously believed that institutions serve to create categories of what he called normalcy. In the UK, the emphasis on attending Russell Group universities as the pinnacle of academic achievement can be seen as a mechanism that defines what is deemed elite or preferred, and this can reinforce societal power structures. You know, we know this ourselves um, very much. It's seen from Oxbridge being talked about, from many of our leading politicians being Oxbridge graduates. It reinforces certain societal power structures and also knowledge structures then. Um, a lot of us would have had bones, I'm sure, to pick with many educational secretaries who have a very set idea of what education should look like but they have come from a very, very particular educational background that categorise them um, and put them on a path at a certain age, which is not necessarily reflective of the wider society and what the wider society cares about. Um, the next thing to think about would be something called resistance and counterconduct. So just as Foucault discussed resistance to power structures, the UK has obviously seen its share of educational resistance. Um, it's going on right now. Um, a lot of us are still under industrial action here in Northern Ireland. We very much still are um, due to the fact our devolved government is not sitting. The teachers unions have not been able to negotiate any kind of pay increase. And this has obviously resulted in teachers cutting back on what would have been their good grace or goodwill work um, that isn't part of their contract. Um, and that is forcing questions on educational reform. Um, alternative educational models is also something to consider as part of this resistance and counterconduct. For example, some of us might have heard of things like the Montessori or the Steiner school system. Um, these school systems would tend to challenge standard pedagogical approaches. Furthermore, there's a lot of student-led movements which protest on certain curriculum changes or they demand for more inclusive histories, um, providing counter-narratives to the established system. You know, we have seen a lot of young people um, on the news in recent years stand up, you know, and say that there needs to be greater awareness or greater inclusion on our school systems of certain topics you know, Greta Thunberg springs to mind with climate change and so on. So that is also something to think about um, that harks back to Foucault's attitude of where there is po um, power, there is resistance as well. And another thing to think about with our UK education system would be special educational needs. From a Foucauldian uh, 
viewpoint, the special educational needs system might be seen as a method of classifying and thereby controlling those who don't fit into what has somehow been deemed the norm established by the mainstream educational model. However, it's essential to recognise that the SEN system also works to provide tailored support um, and that reflects the complexities of balancing individual needs with societal structures. But it is an interesting area to think about. Um, a lot of teachers um, have talked about the increasing number of labels being used for students today and some people question is this a good thing to create that label does that create a certain sense of divergence from what society deems the norm is that beneficial for that child um, will that affect their trajectory in life um, their options and also, is it something that that child might internalize and fall back on as a reason to not self-motivate, to not actualize their potential? So that is something to definitely consider how we handle the SEN model. The next thing I would like to think about, so we started there with the UK's education system broadly, is obviously delving deeper into the, our whole process of standardised testing. Um, we are literally at that crux moment of August where students are anxious, nervous, hoping that they've got the grades that they need or they want to go on and do the next thing. You know, that in itself from a Foucauldian perspective can be quite troubling. Um, so let's delve a little bit deeper into this complexities of control and surveillance and molding individuals through our standardized testing system. So the first thing we could think about is the disciplinary mechanism behind standardized testing. So we know GCSEs, probably the pinnacle of high school education. You know, at that point, a lot of people can decide that's it, I'm done with the educational system. Um, or some see it as a gateway to A-level. This can be obviously viewed as a disciplinary mechanism that governs behaviour and thoughts of students. Uh, they establish very strict criteria for success and for failure, which in turn conditions students to follow a particular path of learning, often prioritising, still very much today, rote memorization over creativity and critical thinking. So that's another thing um, to think about you know, I know pedagogical methods in recent years are really pushing um, teachers and staff to look to the higher end of Bloom's taxonomy, to those more critical thinking skills. But yet our GCSEs, very much in particular, still rely very heavily on rote memorization um, and less engagement with creative thinking and evaluation and opinion-based writing. Um, and that's something that is worrying when we want to send students out into the world who can make critical um, opinions and thoughts about the world around them to then affect change. But equally coming back to Foucault's idea that educational institutions operate as systems of control, we can see from a governmental perspective why those higher educational um, skills might not be as valued in our standardized testing system. It's more dangerous to create students and therefore active adult bodies that can challenge 
the status quo. Um, again, delving a little bit deeper, we've got the power knowledge dynamic of standardized testing. Um, by their very nature, GCSEs, A-levels, etc., they dictate what knowledge is deemed valuable for our students and what is marginalized. The content of these exams sets a standard of what is deemed to be essential knowledge, subtly communicating to our students what's worthy of pursuit. And this curtails the exploration of topics outside this so-called norm. And this can stifle creativity and individuality in the process. And I've seen, you know, we've seen it being posted on Twitter today. It's been on Teachers Talks channel um, about the drop in numbers of maybe students taking up certain subjects. I've seen various posts pitching what subjects have been highest um, scoring and also the highest numbers of students taking in 2023 versus 1993. And there's been a huge shift across, as we can probably predict, to the STEM subjects. And that, again, is being controlled by an ideological system, which is putting preference on science, engineering, technology-based subjects, um, because they're in need by the capitalist system that our country um, is pursuing. And whilst I value all subjects, it's really sad to see sometimes an onus being placed more on the importance or the value of one set of subjects over others when creativity um, is required in all academic pursuits. So that's something to really think about as well. Um, coming back again to the whole idea of classification and exclusion when it comes to standardized testing, um, this is probably one of the most prominent themes in Foucault's work. It basically tells us that we are categorizing our students based on their scores, essentially labeling them as pass or fail, gifted or average. This has profound implications for people, not just like moving the, the label students for a moment, thinking of them as people, being told you're essentially a walking pass or a, or a walking feel has profound implications that they internalize. Um, it affects both their self-esteem and then their aspirations of maybe where they will choose to go for higher education or where they might choose to go for um, an apprenticeship or so on when it comes to future job prospects. Uh, such classifications really can lead to social division as well. Um, this can reinforce certain hierarchies and potentially exclude certain individuals from particular societal roles or privileges. Um, if we think about issues that we see with various students in our classroom, if you think mentally for a moment, imagine your average classroom and you think about a group of students in that room who would be the most marginalized, not necessarily always based on examination results, but often there is a reason that group is marginalized and that in turn affects their examination results. And therefore that group of students is often precluded and not reflected in certain areas of our society so they don't get a voice. 
Um, and that is something to really think about and be concerned with. And then finally, coming back to this idea of resistance and counterconduct, the stress and pressure of standardized tests have led to various resistances, much like Foucault's idea of counterconduct against dominant power structures. But in the UK, there have been many debates, many criticisms and calls for reform. And these question the reliance on these tests as the primary metric of a student's abilities. The rise of coursework, for example, um, was seen as a way to assess a broader range of skills over a more extended period. But obviously this too has faced challenges and criticism as well. Um, but it's still something that we can strive for and think about how can we best assess a child's ability beyond standardized testing? Um, is there a way that can truly reflect what that child has learned and what that child is capable of? Okay. And another area that concerns me a lot um, in the pastoral role of a teacher is the loss of individuality that standardized testing can provoke. If you think about it, by standardizing an evaluation process of what our students have learned, there's a risk of homogenizing the learning experience. Um, so the unique talents of our students, their interests, their potential innovations that they might bring are often sidelined in favor of conforming to the test's demands. Um, Foucault might see this as a manifestation of the system's power to shape individuals to fit into specific societal molds. Again, it comes back to the idea of controlling what is deemed knowledge that's worth knowing um, and sidelining perhaps some of the very interesting knowledge and abilities and gifts that our students have that don't get recognition because of the way that we assess their learning and their knowledge. And then finally, in this little section, is thinking about the role of us as institutions, the institutions that we work in, um, schools, universities, and even certain employers are given considerable weight to standardize test scores um, in the UK. And from a Foucauldian perspective, these institutions play a pivotal role in maintaining the power structures of society you know, they validate, they reinforce the importance of these tests, ensuring their continuity and dominance and in shaping individual students' educational and professional trajectories. And again, that's something that we need to think about. We, as teachers who have to stress to our students, right, you know, you need to know this, this is for your GCSE, you need to have this coursework in for this deadline, it's for your A-level. That is continuing the discourse that reinforces the power of these standardized tests as a measure of their ability. Um, and again, it's a way of control. And that is something to really think about in our efforts to potentially reform our system. Um, if we want to give these students the trajectories that are as broad as possible for their lives, we might need to think about how we can shape a conversation that looks beyond these standardized tests as a measure for our students' abilities in the future. So based on just that little section, when we think about standardized testing in the UK, it 
seeks to offer what is very, very obviously an objective measure of a student's capability, but really that's impossible. How can we objectively look at a student's ability when it's measured by one standardized set of tests? And really we can see through analysis that this is really revealing just of an intricate power dynamic of classifications and controls at play. And the challenge for us as educators, the challenge for policymakers and society at large is to find a balance between assessment and allowing the flourishing of individuality, um, creativity and expression. In it's time the for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Hello again. So it was nice to have that little break there. That was quite intense. Um, as much as I love Foucault, I will not shy away from the fact that sometimes talking about his perspective can be quite daunting and almost a little bit depressing um, when it comes to um, thinking about our roles as teachers in our education system, which we are obviously part of the system of. And, you know, when we start digging even further into this idea of whether schools, our cells, our wards, is looking at our school rules and discipline. A lot of us are obviously coming back into school this week, next week, you know, to do inset and training before our students return. And one of the things that you know is going to be on the agenda is talking about reinforcing school rules and discipline. It's always up there. Um, but from a Foucauldian perspective, school rules and discipline are not merely mechanisms to just maintain order. They are also integral to larger systems of control, surveillance and power. Um, so I thought we could dig into that a little bit deeper. And again, I would love to hear your insights on all of this. You know, maybe you want to talk about what your school does. Do you agree with it? Um, your experiences, even as a student from your days at school and what you thought about it and did it affect you? So if we jump in. Thinking about discipline as power, first of all, is really interesting. Uh, for Foucault, discipline wasn't simply about punishment or correction, but it was a mechanism for controlling and regulating individuals. Schools as institutions tend to employ rules and discipline, as we said, to create docile bodies, individuals who conform to certain behaviours and norms that are deemed acceptable by the institution and on a larger scale by society. Now that isn't always a bad thing. Of course, we do not want to be producing students who go out into the world and commit heinous crimes that threaten society. But at the same time, that term docile bodies, you know, I feel that's quite a troubling term to think that we might reduce students to almost, it feels, it feels quite robotic almost. Um, 
beyond freedom and thinking and acting creatively and freely and spontaneously to something that is very regimented, controlled, compliant almost. Um, And that to me is quite troubling. Sometimes I feel my best classes and learning experiences really, really happen when the students are super active, super engaged, leading the learning themselves. You know, I'm there just to help help answer questions and let them um, crack on further with the activities that they're on. You know, if Ofsted walked in, they might freak out thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> this room is like, well, not chaotic, certainly not chaotic, um, but there's an abundance of talk. And to me, that is what I want to see for true learning that is fully embedded and positive in a child's mind, as opposed to docile students sitting in front of me and the onus is on me to almost pour knowledge into their head. That is, to me, is not what education should be or is about. Um, the next point of that, of course, for school rules and discipline is surveillance. Um, for many of us, we know we have behavioural codes in our school. Um, parents are often expected to sign these now as a way to reinforce um adherence to these rules and so on, especially when a child breaks those rules and the parent comes in, um, that can be brought out in front of them. But often going beyond that, beyond these codes, we as teachers have to monitor our students' behaviours. And today, I think a real evolution in school systems is the embracing of CCTV cameras around our school premises. Um, You know, that is something that's obviously evolved as technology has evolved, but it's also an an omnipresent sense of constantly being watched, even at break times and lunch times, when students have more freedom outside of the classroom environment to have fun. And, you know, that sense of constant surveillance is akin to Foucault's concept of the panopticon. It's obviously to ensure that students are always aware that they're being watched, leading them to self-regulate their behaviour. That's the aim. Um, Even when they're not being watched, there's always the mere possibility that they are being observed, which can condition their actions as well. Um, Now, that can be good and bad, but there is a true sense there that that means in all aspects of their learning, even when they're not learning, when they're in break and at lunch and before school and after school, that they are being watched. And we are truly in a society today where we can be watched at all times with cameras and screens everywhere. And, you know, it really does give a sense of power being taken away from the individual in that regard. Um, The next thing that I like to think about when it comes to rules and discipline is this idea of normalization. Um, Discipline is often there to establish and reinforce what is considered normal. Those who conform to the school's rules and ethos are deemed to be good or model students, while those who diverge are sometimes labeled as troublemakers or disruptive. And this can create a dichotomy that rewards conformity and punishes divergence, thus regulating individuality and creativity and I think that's something to be very mindful of you know I always think of anytime you hear like an interesting um, academic or even 
dare I say, celebrity being interviewed about their younger years, you normally are regaled with a story of how this person was different, who, you know, they were not normalized, that they were maybe a troublemaker in school. Um, Bear Grylls actually jumps to mind. I saw him in a documentary recently talking about when he was sent away to boarding school and actually how that really um, traumatized him but how he acted out in boarding school as a result and was found climbing on the roof of the school at one point. Now look at the success obviously he has had. Now this is not to encourage troublemaking dangerous behaviour of students climbing on the roof of your school, but at the same time this sense of labelling what is deemed normal good behaviour versus abnormal troubled behaviour in itself is very difficult. You know, a lot of the, the times the way students maybe act out according to normalised standards is really them just exercising a moment of creativity and stifling that can be quite damaging for a child um, and also quite limiting for them to show what they are capable of in their future lives. Um, jumping back a little second as well to this idea of production of knowledge if we link this to discipline, the manner in which schools enforce rules dictates what is considered acceptable knowledge as well. Certain behaviours, often those that are challenge establishing norms or authority, are discouraged, leading to a particular form of knowledge production that aligns with institutional values. So if we actually take for a second, you know, especially secondary teachers, you know, sometimes we think very much in silos of you know my subject is English or my subject is physics and I am concerned with the knowledge within this siloed field. Stepping outside of that for a moment and thinking about knowledge beyond disciplines but knowledge in terms of how we understand ethics and rules and behaviour, the disciplinary systems we have in our schools also instill in students a knowledge of what is deemed acceptable behaviour. And that's really interesting to think about. Um, of course, developing a moral code is a good thing. But if we also think through our history and the evolution of um, human progress, there are times where we have realised our rules and codes are not actually ethical. So sometimes stifling students when they do act out actually doesn't help them learn an ethical code. Sometimes the only way some students learn how to interact positively with others and with wider society is to challenge. That's what teenagers in particular do. Um, you know, you need to let them push those boundaries and have conversations as opposed to blanket stifle with a set disciplinary code um, as well. So that is something to think about there. The other one that always really, really interested me is this idea of hierarchy and the, the I'm gonna excuse my accent here. I was about to say it very Northern Irish. Um, I'm gonna say power dynamics for everyone listening in the mainland. Um, schools in the UK, often have hierarchies, not just among staff, but also among students. 
you know, for example, some of you are maybe in schools with prefect systems or school captains and house captains and so on. Um, head boy, head girl, all of those kind of terms um, are often used. These hierarchies are sanctioned by school rules and they can be seen as microcosms of like larger societal power dynamics with those in positions of power like prefects being given authority to monitor and sometimes discipline their peers, reinforcing the school's disciplinary framework. Now, peer discipline can be a tricky one. Um, sometimes, obviously, certain peers really listen to others. At the same time, sometimes even senior prefects can be viewed with very little respect by younger students and trying to offer that position sometimes to an older student you know can be a real source of anxiety asking them to internalize that discipline code of the school and personify that to their peers um, can actually be a really anxiety inducing experience um, so that's something to also really think about um, in the power dynamics of our school system um, then if we think a little bit further beyond the school rules and discipline to external implications, the discipline instilled in schools often has ramifications beyond the school gates. And I don't know about all of you, but I certainly know um, here in Northern Ireland, schools have taken on a greater role in um, discipline, even outside of school time. If school students are wearing their uniform and something happens outside of school, that is still within the remit of the school to handle the next day. Um, so students often internalize certain behaviors and self-regulatory practices that continue into adulthood. And from a Foucauldian part, point of view, schools play a pivotal role in shaping future citizens who adhere to societal norms and values. So it is hoped, you know, in the school's agenda of these behavioral codes, isn't just to manage the teaching and learning, but it's also to create students who will go out then into the world and interact in ways that are safe and respectful, um, you know, both as young people and as adults, you know, so this can have positive ramifications in the real world, but also there are a lot of students who reject the stifling rules of a lot of school systems and that can cause them to actually act out even worse outside of the school gates. So that is something to also consider with our behavioural policies and systems. Are they best tailored to all students when they are normally a blanket system as opposed to taking into consideration the individual personalities that are within our care inside the school walls? The next thing then, and I sort of touched on this a little bit there when we were talking about the rules, is approaching the subject of mental health in UK schools. Um, and if we use Foucault's perspective to do this, it, it requires us to interrogate the nature of power and knowledge again within our institutions. And this was something Foucault talked about in great detail because he himself actually once had to um, check into a mental institution and he wrote extensively about the medicalization of um, individuals as a result. So 
when he explored the relationship between power and knowledge, particularly in the medical realm, he wrote about the rise of mental health awareness in schools and how this may reflect an increased medicalization of our students' emotions and behaviours. And now this isn't to dismiss genuine mental health concerns, but it does note how particular behaviours are often becoming labelled, diagnosed and treated within institutional settings. And that's something to consider, especially post-COVID. Um, all of us are very much aware during the COVID period that many people experienced anxiety um, from being at home and then coming back into the classroom and the learning environment again. This has resulted in a real medicalization of the term anxiety um, in particular. And the question is often posed, is this person genuinely anxious or are we imposing medicalized terms within our institutional setting that aren't really within our remit to diagnose? And even a diagnosis within educational settings is dangerous um, in that we are using medical dialogue within educational parameters. And that can also be internalized by that student that we are medicalizing in that way. And it can often be used then by them to not engage in their learning. Um, it can be used as a means to avoid tasks, to narrow the trajectory of their future and so on. So that's something that we need to tread lightly with, to think about more, to be um, more collaborative, even with our medical partners, to really ensure that we aren't just, you know, basically head nodding towards a checkbox of we are mentally health aware, when in fact, we are actually using it to classify and regulate and refine some of our students into categories. Um, the next thing to think about, again, is when it comes to mental health, this whole idea of surveillance. Um, so contemporary schools, you know, today have a lot of emphasis on continuous assessment, monitoring, surveillance. And again, this harks back to this idea of the panopticon, you know, the prison design where all the inmates are under the impression they are constantly being watched. And this perpetual feeling of being observed and evaluated in itself can lead to increased stress and anxiety, as well as other mental health concerns among students. And, you know, by extension, that can also apply to teachers, um, teachers who are under the looming fear that Ofsted might at any day grace the premises of their school grounds, have this sense of constant surveillance from, you know, peer teachers' observations and preparation for Ofsted through to Ofsted themselves. And that can create a great sense, pardon me, of stress, anxiety, and so on. And, you know, that is very much, I would say, and not um, a new phenomenon, stress and anxiety have of course always existed, but a real raise in awareness and use of those terms, I think, you know, a lot of us might agree that there is an increased usage then of those terms as well um, among our student population. So if we then jump to external societal factors when it comes to the, the concept of mental health in our schools. The school cannot be separated from 
a wider societal context. The pressures that our students face are often microcosms of larger societal expectations and norms. You know, we think about the reaction to A-level results, just how the news has been talking about it in the last few days. That shows society's um, regard for these national standardised tests and how important they are in the national psyche. Um, thus, the rise of mental health issues in schools could be indicative obviously of broader societal tensions and anxieties when it comes to education as well. And that is something for us all, you know, as human beings to be very mindful of. So in some then, while the rise of mental health issues in the UK is undoubtedly multifaceted, uh, Foucaultian Lens would invite us to ask questions um, about the role of institutions in defining and diagnosing and addressing these issues. And it would prompt us to consider how power dynamics, societal norms and institutional structures might contribute to the mental well-being or lack thereof of our students today as well. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Hello again. Nice. As we're coming towards this final section of tonight's Twilight session, I really wanted to get into the meat of this. I know a lot of us have probably been thinking um, about how this reflects our own educational experiences in classrooms and schools. So let's really look then at the role teachers have in the UK's educational system. I know for a lot of us, we certainly feel our job is multifaceted. You know, it's becoming bigger every year um, and there's definitely layers of power and knowledge intricately woven into what we do. Um, so let's delve then a little bit deeper into how our roles as educators can play a part in this whole system of our classrooms reflecting um, a system of control. So while we might see ourselves first and foremost as educators, sharing knowledge, sharing understanding, we are also instruments of disciplinary power. Foucault's ideas about discipline can easily be applied to us. You know, we are the personification of it within the walls of our schools. Um, from this perspective, we serve as instruments of the state or institutional authority. Uh, we help to enforce the norms that I've talked about, the rules, the standards that are set by the educational system at large. Um, through our grading, through our behavioural expectations and the day-to-day -day management of classrooms, we actively engage in practices of surveillance, of normalisation, of regulation. All of those things that Foucault talked about, that is packaged and parceled and part of our job. And I know it's often talked about in terms of helping students get access then to additional support, um, 
helping us to differentiate and so on. But very often these categorizations that are part of our role, again, hark back to these classifications and pathways that we can end up putting our students on, you know, deeming them only fit for certain subjects, um, deeming their behavior only acceptable in certain aspects. And that has large term implications for their futures. Um, so again, it's all about control as part of our job. And that's something we need to think about sensitively and discuss and internalize, you know, so we can be as sensitive to our students as people beyond just a statistic in a mark book. Um, going further than that, then we are objects of surveillance. You know, we act as agents of surveillance over the students. You know, they too are under continuous observation, you know, from us around the school. Um, and even beyond us, school administrators, inspectors, parents, you know, students themselves, you know, we operate within a panoptic structure where their performance methods and conduct are perpetually scrutinized. You know, sometimes I think back to my experience at school, you know, versus the experiences of students today. And I enjoyed school, you know, I did. I, I love going in, I was chatterbox. That's probably why I'm on here talking. Um, but, you know, I always had the fear of being singled out by a teacher, you know, in front of my peers, you know, this constant sense of being scrutinized for anything, you know, even for getting something wrong, not necessarily being in trouble, but even being told something was wrong, you know, that sense of scrutiny and observation for that scrutiny, you know, was quite anxiety inducing, you know, so the way in which we surveil beyond just for behavior, you know, is something to consider um, within our school system, you know, is that affecting our students negatively in any way. Um, then, you know, moving on to what we would heal ourselves mostly as, as knowledge transmitters, as, you know, the figure in the room who is going to instill a love for our subject in our students um, or a love of learning. Um, for Foucault, this old idea of knowledge was never neutral. For him, knowledge is always imbued with power Teachers play a very central role in determining what knowledge is transmitted and how it's delivered and to whom. So this positions us as gamekeepers, gamekeepers, sorry, gatekeepers, influencing students' understanding of the world and shaping societal norms. And when we actually really think about that, like that always sort of, you know, forces me to step back and reevaluate a little bit, like the role that I have. Um, to think for a moment that my role as an educator is determining the world views of many of the young people in front of me based on the knowledge that I present to them. You know, unfortunately, I'm not Wikipedia. I don't have the ability to give them a plethora of knowledge in the time I have with them. But the curricula that I am told that I have to deliver to those students is very much instilling in them a particular view of the world and a view of of that subject and how it's relevant to them in their lives and their future and that's a lot of responsibility and 
that knowledge that I am letting them go away with is going to influence the rest of their lives. So that's something for us all to reflect upon as well, um, especially if we push for educational reform. And then another side to this as well is looking at teachers as victims in this whole perspective. Uh, given the systemic pressures, teachers often find themselves caught in a web of expectations. We know we're always pulled in multiple directions, expected to do a plethora of roles and put on multiple hats throughout the day. Um, we have curriculum mandates, we have standardised testing, we have parental expectations, we have societal expectations. Everybody seems to think that they can do our job um, better than we can. Um, and this can lead to teachers feeling trapped, unable to exercise their professional judgment fully or innovate in their teaching methods. You see, this is the other thing. A lot of young people who maybe want to go on and be a teacher or if we think back to our training days as teachers, our ideas of being an educator are perhaps very different to what we have to play out. And that can be seen through Foucault's perspective of the power, you know, um, the knowledge, the control that various governmental institutions impose on the education system. And we ourselves can be trapped as part of that um, beyond our students and as we sort of move towards the end of our session you know we can start thinking about some more positive sides to this um, and that would be things like teachers as resistors um, so despite structural constraints many teachers find ways to resist subvert or challenge the system uh, whether that's by adopting critical pedagogies advocating for educational reform or simply finding everyday acts of rebellion against overly restrictive curricula. Teachers can and do act as agents of change. Foucault himself believed that where there's power, there's resistance. And he himself spoke out about this at many universities. The classroom in this light can become a site of both conformity and contestation. So that's something, you know, I'm not a I'm not giving you CPD today. I'm going to leave that for your schools. But it could be something to take away um, and think about, you know, in your own classroom practice, you know, is there a way that we, when looking at that big picture of how power is imbued in the knowledge that we are told we have to impart to these students and the system in which those students are being funneled, is there any way we can resist to try and allow those students to have more freedom, more creativity, to be themselves? Um, and thus find a joy and love of learning from a space that isn't so restrictive as well. Um, and as part of that thought, you know, that comes back to us also having to take on the role as caretakers and counsellors, because beyond the academic realm, we often have to play a pivotal role in students' emotional and social well-being. Uh, from a Foucauldian standpoint, this could be seen as an extension of the pastoral power that re like religious authorities obviously once wielded in schools. Um, teachers, whether consciously or not, we engage in practices that mould not just the intellect, but in, in essence, the very soul of our students. Um, and that's a great responsibility um, to fall on our shoulders. 
um, something that we should be very humble about and very acutely conscious of. Um, I think for many of us when we were students and for many of our students who perhaps come and speak to us after they finish their education, um, will often say, you know, they maybe don't remember much about our lessons, but they certainly remember how we made them feel in their lessons and the guidance that we give to them um, outside of their home. And that can have a bigger impact than any of the so-called knowledge that we are um, expected to impart to them. So that is a really um, honourable part of the role of an educator. So when we think about the role then of teachers and the bigger picture um, within this Foucauldian framework, we clearly occupy a very complex space in our current educational system. Um, we are at once instruments of power and subjects to it as well. We are carriers of knowledge, but also the recipients of it. We enforce norms but are also potential agents of change. Our role is a testament to the intricate dance of power, knowledge and resistance that Foucault so eloquently elucidated. And I think that's something that, you know, I like to take away as a positive from Foucault's analysis of our school system at present. So from that, as we move very much towards the end of tonight's system and talk, I would like us to have a little think then about how we can move towards educational reform. I want to try and leave this in something meaty and positive for us to really think about. So let's have a talk then about schools, institutions that are historically grounded in complex power relations. How might we think about what we teach, how that knowledge is constructed and validated and how that could be reformed. So if we rethink power and knowledge, for any reform to be truly transformational, um, it would need to rethink the relationship between power and knowledge to start with. Instead of viewing knowledge as a fixed entity to be transmitted from teacher to student, Foucault would suggest that we approach this from a position that decentralizes knowledge creation, making it more collaborative. So rather than the teacher is the gatekeeper of knowledge that the students then learn from us, it becomes a collaborative shared experience where the students get a say in what they wish to learn. Um, and curricula can then be developed surrounding that as well. And then that leads sort of to the next idea of individuality and creativity versus structure and discipline. If we were talking about reform, you know, using Foucault as a lens here, we might challenge the dichotomy of this itself, this idea of individual and creativity versus structure and discipline. So rather than viewing structure and discipline as inherently oppositional to being an individual, to being creative, Reforms could reimagine them as scaffolds that support students' unique learning journeys. Discipline wouldn't be about enforcing a particular way of thinking or behaving, but about cultivating self-discipline, resilience and responsibility. And I think that's really important. Um, I don't know about you, but certainly resilience is something that a lot of schools here in Northern Ireland have been talking about and trying to develop in students, um, particularly post-COVID. And 
this might be a key measure to help do that. Rather than stifling students with strict structure, strict discipline, using those as a scaffold to safely, you know, monitor our students to keep them safe within our walls, but then allowing them to express individuality and creativity, which naturally nurtures resilience through trial and error. When students get to be creative, they get to see what works and doesn't work for them, and then they try again rather than having activities imposed upon them, which they find difficult or challenging, don't ask for help with or can't do, and then they give up. That's not a good way to build resilience. So that's something we could potentially take away from that. Um, another interesting idea would be decentralizing curriculum design. Um, a lot of us for the last day have been talking about the different exam boards and and the way that they create their specifications for GCSE and A-level um, knowledge content. Perhaps decentralizing such curriculum design would make a huge impact on students and teachers as well. <laughs> One of the main power relations that we see in education is who obviously gets to decide the curriculum. Um, if students are more actively involved, if frontline teachers are more actively involved and even local communities, um, this can really democratize the process of education. Um, while there would obviously be still national standards or guidelines, you know, local adaptations and student input can certainly make learning more engaging and relevant. Um, and obviously then as a byproduct, you know, if we hark back to school rules and discipline, you would probably find students would naturally be more behaved within school hours because they enjoy the curriculum. They have had a say in it. You know, it reflects their interests more actively as well. Um, if we look then at assessment, you know, the key topic of discussion for the next week or so, um, if we think about assessment differently, thinking about assessment as reflection, and not regulation would be really interesting. Standardized testing classifies, it ranks, and in a way it disciplines students. Reforms instead might push for more formative, continuous assessments that act as reflective tools for students to understand their progress rather than summative tests that pigeonhole them into categories potentially for the rest of their lives. And I think that couldn't be more true. Um, you know, I think of adults in any profession, any job, if you don't know how to do something, you're shown how to do it again. You know, you ask, you'll be shown how to do it again um, until you get it. It's sad to think that for such young, impressionable people, they maybe get one or two chances. You know, I know they can reset GCSEs and A-levels, but you only get a few, um, realistically. Um, and it's sad to think that such a summative test can feel like the be all and end all um, for their future, no matter how many times we tell them there's other pathways and so on. It's been such an instilled part of the rhetoric of this nation um, that it can really, really feel that that is encapsulating of who they are and all they're able to do is that test result. Um, another thing would be more teacher training and autonomy. Um, empowering teachers means providing them with autonomy to be flexible in their teaching approaches. 
it also means training them not to just be transmitters of knowledge, but also as facilitators of critical thinking, um, allowing teachers to foster environments where students can question and can challenge and co-create knowledge um, is super important. And I think that would be a wonderful reform to see um, within the British education system. Another thing would be spaces of learning. Um, Foucaultian perspective would also consider the physical and now digital spaces where learning happens. Um, a lot of Foucault's work obviously talks about the prison setting. Um, and I'm sure for some of us, when we walk into schools, we can certainly see the parallels um, in that environment. But breaking away from traditional classroom setups, reforms might encourage more open collaborative spaces. Furthermore, in an increasingly digital age, considerations around online learning environments, such as their design and the power dynamics they introduce become crucial as well, um, especially online safety. But this is certainly something to really, really think about and engage with more. Um, the physical setup of our classrooms, is there a way we can make that space feel more collaborative um, in knowledge um, production and transmission and the same with online many of our students are probably more gifted than us with using digital spaces um, having our students help with setting up a classroom learning experience that they feel part and parcel of can really do a lot to um, invigorate their love of learning as well and the last two little things I wanted to talk about were the hidden curriculum Every school has an implicit set of values and norms that students learn, and it's often unintentional. Reforms could see this hidden curriculum um, and address it, ensuring it aligns with the values of individuality, creativity, and critical thinking as well. You know, we don't just want students to internalize what we have expectations of, but we want that hidden curriculum to feel as if it fully supports their individualism, their creativity, and their critical thinking development as well. And then the last little thing I wanted to leave us with was inclusion and equity. We want to ensure that a reformed education system doesn't just replicate or exacerbate existing inequalities. That's essential. This means we want to be attentive to the diverse needs of students from different backgrounds, different abilities and identities, ensuring that individuality doesn't become a privilege of some students and not all students. So as we move to a close then, um, folks, the UK, where we have the privilege and the challenge sometimes of teaching, um, our educational landscape is is shaped very much by historical traditions, contemporary pressures and diverse student needs. So reform is obviously a complex task. Um, but from Michel Foucault's viewpoint, it would become a matter of not just changing practices, but also interrogating underlying power dynamics. The challenge is to envision and create a system that truly values each student's unique journey while providing the communal structure and support that education as a social enterprise necessitates. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.
Thank you all folks. I hope that interested you tonight and you might explore some of Foucault's work further and have a great time chatting about it with some of your colleagues. I've been Andrea Hanna on Teachers Talk Radio. Have a great night and a lovely weekend.